Some people claim that Jesus didn't actually die on a cross, but rather a stake or a pole. They even say that the cross is a pagan symbol. So today we're going to examine these claims in depth using history and scripture as our guide to find the truth behind the crucifixion of Jesus. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander and I'm your host today as always. Thanks so much for being here with me. Today's topic seems a little trivial, but it's actually very interesting and very important. We're talking about the cross of Christ and whether Christ was crucified on a cross or a stake and a pole. Now again, it seems trivial, but this is actually, this topic is being blown up in the conspiracy world and the alternative news world and the internet, so to speak, uh, where people are basically doubting whether Christ was crucified on a cross and going with a unsubstantiated explanation. And I say that because there is a lot of evidence to suggest that Christ was actually crucified on a cross. So today we're going to look at these claims in depth because they are getting more and more popular. And specifically, the people who are pushing these claims the most are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, if you are a Jehovah's Witness and you're watching this, I implore you, I implore you to be patient and to stay with me to realize the history of this claim and the history of how people believe these things and where it comes from, because even the JWs did not believe in what they believe in today. The original Jehovah's Witnesses for about 60 years believed that the cross of Christ was a cross. It wasn't a stake or a pole or anything else. So we have to look at history. We have to look at these things. But even if you're not a JW and you've come across this idea and you believe that you know, cross was not uh, Christ was not crucified on a cross. The other arguments are, you know, Christianity is pagan because the cross is actually a pagan symbol, or it's a representative of, you know, the god Tammuz, or you know, the the Bible can't be trusted. See, you know, it says cross, but actually it was a torture stake. So how can you trust anything else in the Bible? So, you know, th- there's there's a lot of ways that this seemingly simple situation, seemingly simple argument can easily erode at someone's faith, can easily erode at, you know, their their confidence in Christianity, and especially if you don't study history or if you're new to Christianity. When you hear something like this, it can really maybe throw you for a spin. And so my goal today is to take this seemingly innocent issue, which again can cause some problems for people, and really bring some clarity. Because as with everything, especially when we look at history and historical things, we have to have a nuanced approach because more often than not, what really happens is there is a mix of truth with lies when it comes to these types of things. So there's certain things that are true and there are certain things that are not. And when you mix them together, it's very hard to discern what the truth actually is. It's kind of like how people know that the Catholic Church in history was a persecuting power, and it still is. And how the Catholic Church did all these things like Inquisition and the Crusades and, you know, all these things that are evil in the sense, right? So ultimately, when we look at history and say, oh, see, the Christianity must be a psyop. Well, wait a minute. Are we talking about institutionalized Christianity or are we talking about the way of life that Jesus came to proclaim through the the gospel? You see how these things get easily wrapped up together? We know the truth, that history testifies against the Catholic Church, 
But the lie is that suddenly everything is discredited. This is what the founding fathers of America believed. They actually rejected the divinity of Christ. They rejected the Trinity. They rejected many things about traditional Christianity. I don't mean institutionalized Christianity. I mean orthodox Christianity, as in believing the Bible. Jefferson even tore out pages of the Bible to make his own gospel of Jesus that omitted miracles, prophecy, pretty much everything about Jesus that made him Jesus. And so, you know, (laughs) this is nothing new. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. So we have to use discernment. We have to be careful. And ultimately, we have to take things one step at a time, which is what I plan on doing today. So this little trivial topic can basically lead to some serious problems, especially, you know, even like with me, I wear a a cross on my hat. Some people like to wear crosses as jewelry. And of course, there's a limit to these things as well. But ultimately, is it a thing that you ask yourself, am I in the right wearing this or having this? Is it something that I should not have because it's a pagan symbol? These types of things are important to understand so you don't feel, you know, awkward or you, you brush away these things about uh, your your confidence wearing these things. So, okay, at the very least, this whole, th- this whole situation can cast doubt on your Christian faith. And so that's why we want to bring clarity to it. At the most, at the most, it, ca- it casts doubt on Christianity with, with the whole idea that, you know, Tammuz... Um, the cross is a pagan symbol for Tambo, Tammuz, and the Bible can't really be trusted because, you know, the, it's not actually historically accurate that Jesus died on a cross. These types of things are very insidious. And again, if you are new to the faith, then it's important to have clarity so you're not thrown for a spin. Because there's a lot of people that are in the alternative news situation. They're in the internet, and they come across this stuff. And of course, some of it seems real, and certainly it's based in history. We'll talk about it, like with Constantine. But it's not the complete truth, and so people form their opinions very quickly, and that can lead to more misinformation. So, let's outline the arguments for this whole situation. The the first argument actually just comes from the usage of the cross. Like, for example, in Luke 14, 27, when Jesus says, you know, let let him take up his cross and follow me, right? And... Cross, the word for cross there in Greek is stauros, S-T-A-U-R-O-S, stauros, which means just like a stake or a post of some kind. Now, the argument is, again, the people who promote this argument the most are Jehovah's Witnesses, so we'll be focusing on them a little bit, but they're not the only ones. The, The argument is that because this word means stake or post, that the cross was actually, this is a mistranslation, right? So we'll look at that. We'll look at that argument. Another argument is that the cross is a pagan symbol. It represents uh, Tammuz, which is one of the pagan Chaldean gods. And another argument is that Constantine implemented the cross, right? Obviously, we know that Constantine fused religion and politics together. And, you know, there were some very questionable things about Constantine and his efforts. So we're going to look at that and see, did, did Constantine come up with the cross in order to placate this this rising difference between Christianity and paganism? So he united Christian uh, Christianity and paganism in his empire. And the question is, did he appropriate the cross as a pagan symbol to Christianity? So we'll look at that. And the final argument is just really that there's no evidence that Christ was crucified on a cross. So we're going to look at historical and biblical evidence as well for that. So number one is 
this idea that the word stauros in various parts of the Bible, like Luke 14, 27, is a stake or a cross. So in Luke 14, 27, really quick, um, it says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Right? So basically, just take up your cross and follow me. So the New World Translation, I believe, which is the Jehovah's Witness uh, Bible, it translates it as, let him take up his torture stake and follow me. So, instead of cross, they say torture stake. That's how it's translated. And of course, the the next part of that, which is kind of the worst part, is that they use this as an evangelizing tool to teach people that, well, you see, the cross is pagan, so you can't trust the Bible, or at least you can't trust the translation that you have. And, you know, basically you can't, you can't really trust what you're looking at. So you need our translation. And of course, our, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, look, I have nothing against Jehovah's Witness. I have nothing against anybody, really. But you are being deceived. Jehovah's Witnesses reject the Trinity. And they, therefore, therefore, they reject the deity of Christ. That's why they're a works-based religion. The gospel calls you to a relationship with Christ, who is God. He's the second person of a triune being but he's God. And the gospel calls you into a relationship with him based on grace and faith. Because the gospel teaches you that God did the work because only he can do the work for salvation. He does the work to atone for you, or he did the work to atone for you. And he's doing the work to sanctify you through the Holy Spirit and to keep you and to help you persevere. This is the true gospel. Because the true gospel comes with assurance of salvation. If you are working in any way, you have no assurance of salvation. Because at the very least, people who believe that it's up to us to do something, you also have to believe that you can lose your salvation. You see how that works? It's a double-edged blade. And if you believe you can lose your salvation, Jehovah's Witnesses don't have assurance of salvation because they're working for it. It's a legalistic approach to the Bible. And why is that, though? Again, because if you look at everybody who denies the Trinity, you have to deny the deity of Christ. This is, it's all related, folks. You have to deny the deity of Christ because the Trinity states that Christ is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Christianity did not come with the come up with the Trinity. It's not a pagan idea. Pagans never worshipped one God in three divine persons. They had three gods. Sure, they had like mother, father, son, and all these types of trinities, but not the trinity as it is understood in the orthodox Christian approach and revealed throughout the Bible. The Old Testament is full of images of the trinity with the angel of the Lord and you know all kinds. Of, we're not going to get into that. That's a whole other can of worms. But the reality is the Bible forces you into the trinity. Nobody made it up. It is the only logical explanation, even though we can't really understand it. It's the only logical explanation for who God is. Because with the Trinity, you get the divinity of Christ. If Christ is not divine, here's, here's the kicker, okay? This is the thing to understand and to really, really understand. If you reject the divinity of Christ, you reject the gospel. Because if Christ is not divine and he's just a created being in any form, even if he's the most glorious created being, He's still created. If that was the case, 
then his sacrifice would not be able to atone for everybody forever. Okay, you look at in the Bible, you look at sacrifices between various different things, and there's an order of life. God values bulls more than he values pigeons in terms of atoning for sins. There's, a, there's an order. Things are more valuable than others, right? So what does that mean? That means that certain created beings, that, for example, you, he didn't want you sacrificing your child. Why? Because human beings are the most valuable beings on earth, They're the most valuable created beings. They're made in God's image. But they still have a value, right? They don't, we don't have infinite value like God has infinite value. So we are on, an, on a tiered order system. We're at the top of creation, but nevertheless, we, are, we have a limited value in some sense, if you follow me. Now, what does all this mean? Well, what it means is, right, so when they were sacrificing animals, follow me closely here. If they were sacrificing animals and certain animals were more valuable than others and certain things could atone more for more people or whatever else, then what that means is that every created being has a limited power to atone. You see how this works? Every created being has a limited power to atone. So if Christ is not divine and God, if God himself did not shed his blood on the cross, then the atonement would not be an infinite bank account. Do you see how this works and why it's so important to believe in the divinity of Christ? And if you believe that Christ is God, which is what the gospel testifies, that forces you into the Trinity. Because the Father is God, very clearly so. Christ is God. In fact, that's one of the reasons the Jews wanted to kill him. Because he claimed to be God and he claimed to forgive sins. So there's no way getting around that. And of course, the Holy Spirit is God, which although he's not as obvious, we see many, many clues throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit has a will. He's referred to as a he, as a person. So, you know, again, the Bible forces you into the Trinity, but Jehovah's Witnesses reject the Trinity. And so they are very misaligned in their theology, and they're very deceived by their elders. But again, if they're able to get into your mind, right, with, with various things like, oh, you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust this translation, etc., etc., then the danger is that you might end up believing something that isn't biblical, it isn't true. So, let's jump into Jehovah's Witnesses stuff. Now, one of the ways that they justify this position is they use one of the popular dictionaries, the New Bible Dictionary, 1985 edition, to define uh, this word stauros. So let's take a look. This is from a book called um, Insight on the Scriptures, Volume 1. So this is a huge resource. This is by Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. So it's a very huge um, resource in the JW area. So now if we look in page, one, I believe, 1191, and you look under Stauros, right? So this this whole page is about the cruise. I had to zoom in, so it's kind of hard to see everything. But what does the original Greek reveal to the shape of the instrument on which Jesus was put to death? So there's a whole thing here. And one of the paragraphs talks about the word Stauros. So let's see what it has to say. So this reads, Stauros in both the classical Greek and Koine carries no thought of a cross, in quotations, made of two timbers. It means only an upright stake, pole, pale, pile, or pole. 
as might be used for a fence, stockade, or palisade, says Douglas's New Bible Dictionary of 1985, under cross, page 253. The Greek word for cross, staurus, verb stauro, means primarily upright stake or beam, and secondly, a stake used as an instrument for punishment and execution. So, what did we get out of this definition? What we got is that, according to this JW source, the Greek word staros is just a pole and a stake. It's not a cross with beams. It's just a pole and a stake. And they cited the New Bible Dictionary, 1985 edition, page 253. So we're going to go to that New Bible Dictionary and see what does it say, because this has been taken out of context. So if we go to the New Bible Dictionary, and again, I'll cite all my sources in the description of this episode as usual, but this is the New Bible Dictionary by Douglas J.D., uh, I believe 1985 edition, and this is page, whatever page it is, 253. You can see 253. It's got a picture of somebody being crucified, and in this case, the picture is of a, of a man on a T-shaped cross. So this is, this is very important because, let's, let's read. So this is where it's taken from. But they go on to talk a lot about crucifixion, and there's a very revealing paragraph that we have to take a look at. It reads like this. Apart from the single upright post, crux simplex, on which the victim was tied or impaled, there were three types of crosses. The crux comissa, St. Anthony's cross, was shaped like a capital T, thought by some to be derived from the symbol of the god Tammuz. Well, there it is. It's the upright T. The letter Tau, the crux decusia, or St. Andrew's cross, was shaped like the letter X. The crux emisa was the familiar two beams, like a lowercase t, held by tradition to be the shape of the cross on which our Lord died. And he cites Irenaeus, and we'll look at what Irenaeus said. This is strengthened by the references in the four Gospels, and there's various references, which we will look at, to the title, Nailed to the Cross, of Christ over his head. So we'll look at that when we look at biblical evidence. But what's the point here? The point and the conclusion to take is that the Jehovah's Witness citation of the new uh, Bible dictionary was taken out of context. Do you see what they did? So this is not good scholarship. They took one part of that whole commentary in the new Bible dictionary and twisted it to, to basically justify their theory that it was just a stake. The truth is that there were three types of crosses. I mean, there was a lot of ways that people got crucified. There was a lot of ways that people were killed. Crucifixion was just a brutal... What was the point of crucifixion? The point of crucifixion was to deter people from crime and, and rebellion. So they hung the body up in some form or fashion, whether it was impaled, whether it was hung on nails, whether it was hung on a pole, on a T-shaped cross, doesn't matter. As long as you're up there bleeding to death and people are looking at you and remembering that they're being dominated and they can't do anything, it served its purpose. So the cross, or I should say the crucifixion, as a way, as a political instrument, was used in a variety of different ways. You have to remember that. And it was used for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the point is this. They took that citation out of the New Bible Dictionary out of context there were three types of crosses, probably four if you count the pole. You had the T, the uppercase T, I said the uppercase T, the lowercase T, the X, and then you had the pole. So that's four types of 
instruments. It probably there was more, who knows, but that was the four that was revealed mostly through archaeology and history. So you had four types of crosses, a lot of ways people died. The point is this, it's very possible, even from just this immediate look into some sources, that Christ was crucified on a lowercase t, or the traditional type of cross. That's a very possible thing. So we can't dismiss it just yet. But now I want you to consider a couple things. That the First and foremost, that the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they were founded up until the 1930s, 1931, they actually believed that Christ was crucified on a cross. This is my message to any Jehovah's Witness watching this episode. Because the reality is that your organization believed and taught these things for 60 years, approximately, up until the 1930s. And the question is, why did they switch? I don't know. That's not what this is. Ep- that's not what this episode is about. But let's take a look. This is the 1912 Watchtower. You can look these up. They're very commonly indexed. So if you can see here in the corner of this magazine, this Watchtower is the main magazine for Jehovah's Witnesses. You have a symbol. You have a cross and a crown. This was their symbol for many, many decades. And that was in 1912. Here's another one. This is um, by the founder, actually, Charles Taze Russell. This is called The Photodrama of Creation. Uh, this was published, uh, let's see when it was published. It was, it was published quite a while ago, I believe in the 1800s. But if you look in just the first couple pages, this is Internet Archive, look at this, Cross and the Crown. So the founder started with a cross and the crown. If we look at the next one, now this is this is a collection of all 19, this is a PDF, this is a collection of all 1931 watchtowers that were published. Now this is, this is October 1st, 1931, this edition that I'm looking at right here. As you can see, here's the cross and the crown, okay? But now look at this. We're going to look, we're going to jump to... Uh, and the page numbers I've written. This is now October 15th, 1931. You can see that. And what do you notice in the corner? No more cross and crown. It was removed. So by October 15th, October of 1931, basically, this had changed. And again, the question is why? But everything up until that point, they believed in the cross and the crown. Let's look at another one. This is um, another book it's called the project uh, this is actually project gutenberg they they index various books but the book is called the harp of god proof conclusive that millions now living will never die and i believe this is by jf rutherford who was the second president of the watchtower he was he was definitely an official um you know source but if you if you just search for the word cross in this you're going to find a lot of things that basically show that he believed in a cross not a stake Let's look at this. The ransom price was provided at the cross. The cross of Christ is the great pivotal truth of the divine man of the divine arrangement from which radiate the hopes of men. So, this is Rutherford speaking and writing and he believed in a cross. But yet if you look at for example, you know, the what is truth, I believe he wrote that in 1932. I couldn't find it without having to pay for it, but again, it's it's all consistent. If you look at these things after 1931, they changed their story. So the question is why, when he was so adamant about the cross being a cross, right? So that's that's a very interesting piece of information. 
Now, we have another book also by Judge Rutherford. Now, his name is J.F. Rutherford. He was a judge, but look at this. This is the book called Life, and this book was printed in 1929, I believe. And this is page 216. So we're going to zoom in just a little bit more so you can see this. It says, Jesus was crucified upon the cross. But it is a well-known fact that contrary to the custom in respect to the victims with crucifixion, not one of his body was broken. So he was just talking about the Passover and how it's a type for the Messiah, which is true. But again, he affirms that Jesus was crucified upon the cross. This was from 1929, two years before the change. So he was pretty adamant and consistent that Christ was crucified on a cross up until 1931, where, again, you see later publications like What is Truth by J.F. Rutherford in 1932. He changed his story. So, again, who knows what the reason for that is? I'm not going to speculate, but there you go. This is a documentary from the actual Jehovah's Witness website, jw.org, The Kingdom, 100 Years and Counting. And we're at about 30 seconds. So you can see here, basically, this woman has what? Let's see where she's... Now, this is a quick little image. You see how it... Let's see if I can find it here. I'm going to stop. Okay. You see this? They, They flash it in your eyes. So about 31 or 32 seconds. What do you see here? You see the cross and the crown. Of course, this is about the history of the JWs. But again, they're not hiding it. They realize that they started with the cross. And again, the question is why, when for the first 60 years of this organization's history, including the founders and and top authorities like J.F. Rutherford, believed in a cross. So what what do we take from all these things? Well, the JWs began with the cross. And again, 60 years later, that changed for whatever reason. But their interpretation of Stauros is taken out of context. And as we'll see, this word has a vast meaning because there's a lot of different ways that people were crucified. Now, I want to remind you of an important idea when you're looking into words and word studies and very things. You know, etymology is very important. However, it's very easy to to make an etymological fallacy. Now, what is that? An etymological fallacy it's not a logical fallacy. It's an etymological fallacy. Etymology is the, the history and origin of words. But one thing that happens when people are studying the history and origin of words is they assume that a word, that a, the original meaning of a word, is the meaning that carries through time forever, which is not true. And this is what, what's called an etymological fallacy. With staros, staros started being used anywhere between 700 to 300 years before Christ. Now, that's a long time. It was used, the point is it was used for several centuries before Jesus even came and got crucified. And so, if that's the case, imagine how many ways that that word evolved to generalize and to take other meanings into it. Consider even just the last hundred years and things that we have changed with language how slang develops. I mean, if you've ever studied etymology, if you like etymology, I do. I always think the evolution of language is very interesting. Even with the Bible, I mean, certain things, certain words don't mean what we think they do, even if we look at the original meaning or a concordance, because 
the, the language is constantly evolving and shaping and adding new meaning to existing words. And so you can't go based off of the original meaning of the word, which may have been just stake or a pole, and assume that people are are using that in an exclusive sense 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 years later when people wrote about Jesus' death. So this is the thing to remember, to be careful. Um, but the next argument I want to talk about is the cross being a pagan symbol that represents Tammuz. Well, obviously, we saw from the New Bible Dictionary that this is much more nuanced. And here's the thing. People did not sacrifice people to Tammuz on T-shaped crosses. There's not much evidence of that. The point is that people saw that, saw the T-shaped cross, and appropriated it colloquially, socially, to the god Tammuz. We don't really have a lot of history and record that, that this was like the official way that people sacrificed to their god Tammuz. It was just something that people said as like a locker room talk type of thing. Like, oh, look at that, it probably rep- represents Tammuz. But it wasn't, it wasn't some official religious thing. And so there's two points here. The first point is that the uppercase T is not what Christ was crucified on. That's not what Christianity states. Even though there was some talk that maybe the uppercase T represented the god Tammuz, that wasn't the cross, that wasn't the shape that of the instrument that Christ was crucified on. So that's the first point. The second point, again, is people were killed in a variety of different ways. I mean, there were so many ways that people got killed, impaled, nailed to a pole, nailed to an uppercase T, nailed to a T-shaped cross, nailed to an X. I mean, you name it, they would they would figure it out. And so you cannot generalize. You have to have more nuance in your belief. Now, there were other things to consider too, and we'll talk that we'll talk about that with Constantine. But I want to again remind you that saying that the cross is pagan, what does that mean? That means that pagans were using this symbol part of their religious worship in some way. And there's just no evidence of that. There's no there's not a lot of evidence of people using a T-shaped cross as a way of worshiping it and, you know, maybe sacrificing on it. I mean, there's just not a lot of evidence for that. People were being crucified. And one of those shapes, which is an uppercase T, was appropriated casually to Tammuz. But that's not enough evidence to say that Christianity is pagan. There's a huge leap of logic, probably a several leaps of logic there. So we have to be careful. So that argument that Christianity is pagan because of the cross or the cross is pagan doesn't hold any water. Now, I want to look at Constantine and this idea that, again, the third argument was Constantine implemented the cross to fuse Christianity with paganism, right? So again, there, there's there's some truth here. And if you don't know your history, if you don't you know, look into these things with a nuance, then it's very easy to believe because there is some truth here. Now, I talk in depth, absolutely in depth about Constantine and how he fused uh, Christianity with paganism in my end time series, episode 16, I believe, where we talk about the woman riding the beast. It's either 16 or 17, I forget now, but either way, both of those are really good because they're talking about Mystery Babylon. But one of those episodes talks about the historical aspect and how in the very beginning, it started with Constantine, where he unified church and state. Now, Constantine was not a Christian. He was a pagan, and he wanted more power, and he wanted to integrate Christianity into the Roman Empire. Because why? Because Christians were 
persevering despite being thrown to lions, despite being crucified, despite being, you know, burned alive. I mean, they were persevering. And so it was a real problem. So the right thing to do was to integrate it into Christianity. And as we can see, we'll look at a source here very soon. I talk about this in depth in that episode. Again, episode 16. You can check out the whole series at danceoflife.com slash end times. Episode 16, I believe. But either way, I talk about how there was a spirit that guided Constantine to do what he did. And we'll look at this in this Battle of Milvian Bridge. So this is a battle that Constantine experienced a vision at. So let's take a look at it. The Battle of Milvian Bridge took place between the Roman emperors Constantine and Maxentius on October 28th, 312. It takes its name from the Milvian Bridge, an important route over the Tiber. Constantine won the battle and started on the path that led him to end the Tetrarchy and become the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. So pretty important battle. Maxentius drowned in the Tiber during the battle. His body was later taken from the river and decapitated, and his head was paraded through the streets of Rome on the day following the battle before being taken to Africa. According to Christian chroniclers Eusebius of Caesarea and Lactantius, Lactantius, the battle marked the beginning of Constantine's conversion to Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Eusebius of Caesarea recounts that Constantine and his soldiers had a vision, pay attention now, sent by the Christian God. Okay, let's see what this vision was about. This was interpreted as a promise of victory if the sign of the Chiro, which is a the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, which is looks like a P intersecting an X. You've probably seen this in Catholic circles or other places. It's very common. In institutionalized religion, like Eastern Orthodoxy uses it. Uh, the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek was painted on the soldiers' shields. The Arch of Constantine, erected by, in celebration of victory, certainly attributes Constantine's success to divine intervention. However, the monument does not display any overtly Christian symbolism. So so what happened here? I mean, this, this is kind of a little just dry, matter-of-fact history, but what's really going on here? Well, again, if you look into history and you look at kind of what happened after that, we can conclude that the Christian God, Yahweh of the Bible, did not guide Constantine to do that. God, God does not guide you to do these fleshly things of unifying religion and politics, where you're putting symbols, you're making God into something like a symbol. God is not limited by symbols or, you know, whatever, physical things, right? So God would never guide him to do that. But somebody else would guide him to do that. And if we look at Constantine's efforts, he very shortly afterward integrated Christianity with paganism. And that's true. He he incorporated a lot of things, pagan things, into, uh, into the Christian institution and, and created an institution. The Christian church was about fellowship with other believers, and then it became this institutionalized political, religio, military thing, which eventually led to the papacy. That's really what happened, because that's what the Bible foretold. The little horn power came out of Rome, right? The Daniel saw, it came out of Rome, which is the fourth beast. And so anyway, there's a whole series on that. But the point is that if you look at what Constantine did, he put even there's a coin where there's on one side, uh, like the, the Sol Invictus, which was the sun god. And on the other side, you had the Chiro, which was the, the Christ's, you know, first two letters of Christ's name, or I should say Christ, you know, Jesus Christ. But why would you do that? The question is, would God guide you to do that? Would God not tell you, hey, wait a minute, don't put the sun god in my, you know, in Christ 
on the same coin. What are you doing? Obviously, he didn't have discernment, and so we know that the Spirit guiding him was not the Holy Spirit, but something else. And of course, if you know your history, that Spirit that was guiding Constantine was doing so because it wanted to make its own counterfeit religion. And there's there, this is a whole can of worms, but what is the point of this? Well, Constantine saw a chiro. He didn't see a cross, like the traditional cross that we know Christ got crucified, like the one on my hat, like the this lowercase t. He did not see that. He saw this image of the first two letters of Christ in Greek to be superimposed on each other and to be put on various things like coins and shields and, and all these other things. So this idea that Constantine brought the cross as we know it with two perpendicular beams into Christianity as a pagan symbol is false. It plays off of something that's true, which is that Constantine brought in pagan ideas. He was definitely wanting an institution. He wanted more control. He combined things like the name of Christ's uh, name in Greek with, with pagan symbols like the sun god. Absolutely. There's a lot of that to look into. He officialized the calendar and made all the, you know, the, all the days that we have today are are just Greek and Roman god names, you know. So ultimately, we are still in a pagan system in some sense. But the point is that this whole idea that he brought the cross as a pagan symbol is false. It's not true. So again, we have to use discernment. It's very true that uh, Constantine fused Christianity with paganism to create institutionalized Christianity, which is the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church, the Mormon Church, all these things that have splintered off from it, they're all pretty much the same, including JWs. They're an institution. You are relying on prophets and elders and all these people to tell you what to believe instead of really looking at the Word of God as to what to believe and history, too, which is very important. But now this final point is that there's no evidence. There's no evidence for the cross of Christ to be a cross. Well, let's take a look at the evidence. We're going to look at historical evidence, or we're going to look at biblical evidence. So the first thing I want to show you with historical evidence is this paper called Crucifixion Practices. And the author is Ruben van Wingerden. It's published actually last year. But I want to read the abstract. And again, you can access this paper in the links. But ancient crucifixion has been the subject of some major studies in the last 20 years. However, they remain silent on how the patibulum was attached to the vertical post or stipus, either with or without an individual. This issue is addressed in this article. The author describes modern approaches to this issue and suggests that there are that there is evidence that nails were used in attaching the, t- the patibulum to the crux stipus, meaning the, the horizontal, the patibulum is the horizontal uh, beam and the stipus or the crux stipus is the vertical beam. So let's continue. Moreover, the author suggests that the crook steepest was not imagined to be always already erected before the patibulum was attached, contrary to what is usually related. The Gospel of Peter implies that both beams were attached to each other on the ground before being raised up, and this practice is attested with similar capital punishments in antiquity as well. So again, there's varying opinions on whether the cross was whole as Jesus was raised up on it, or he was he had a patibulum, right? And then they nailed that to the cross later. I mean, the point is 
The point is not which one it is. The point is that they were using, a, this is now a fifth piece of evidence that supports the T-shaped cross. Because again, you had a stake, you had an uppercase T, you had a lowercase T, you had an X, and then oftentimes you had a patibulum. Because remember, these things were pretty heavy. This is like a really heavy piece of wood. And so they would give you just a, a horizontal beam that they would tie. In fact, the, the film, one of my favorite movies about Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. So I think it was from, like from the 70s. And they do a good job of portraying that because he's carrying a patibulum. And he's basically carrying it and then they attach it to the cross. And so the point is this. The point is that this was also a thing that was being used with crucifixion that would lend support to the possibility that Jesus was crucified on a cross, like a T-shaped cross, a traditional cross. Now, the next piece of evidence, which I think is a great one, very famous discovery called the Alexamenos Graffito. Let's take a look. This is on Wikipedia. The Alexamenos Graffito, also known as the Graffito Blasphemo, or Blasphemous Graffito, is a piece of Roman graffito scratched in plaster on the wall of a room near the Palatine Hill in Rome which was now been removed and is in the Palantine Museum. It may be meant to depict Jesus. If so, it com- competes with an engraved gem held in the British Museum as the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's hard to date, but has been estimated to have been made around 8200. So it's very old work. The image seems to show a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. The Greek inscription approximately translates to Alexamenus worships his god indicating the graffito was probably meant to mock a Christian named Alexamenos. So it's hard to tell in this picture, but this is the outline of it. Again, you can look this up on Wikipedia if you're listening to it. It's called the Alexamenos. So the word Alex, and then A-M-E-N-O-S, Alex Amenos, graffito. Like graffiti, but with an O at the end. And so what you have here is this picture, this crude drawing, basically. It's it's mocking Jesus. It's very obvious that this is mocking somebody worshiping another person who was crucified. Well, the only one in history was Jesus that we would attach that to. And obviously this was in Rome, so the context is very clear. This person was a believer, and some people were mocking him by blaspheming Christ on the cross. But the point is this. it's The picture, which again, it's a mockery, but it, it's telling of what people believed and knew, which is that crucifixion, at least of Christ, was on a cross. Because the picture of this figure is represented with arms outstretched to the left and to the right. It's not on a pole. It's on basically a T-shaped cross. So this is a very, and this again, it's in the second century. So it's a very old piece of evidence, uh, very early Christianity. Now, this next thing is from uh, Dialogue with Trifo, chapters 89 through 108. And we're going to look at Justin Martyr, who was also an early figure in the church, one of the church fathers, and see what he says. And God by Moses shows in another way the force of the mystery of the cross. When he said in the blessing wherewith Joseph was blessed. So then he quotes this blessing in Joseph, and this is from Deuteronomy 33, uh, verses 13 through 17. And in this, you know, there's a mention of a unicorn and horns, but let's see what Justin Martyr appropriates this to. He says, now no one could say or prove that the horns of a unicorn represent any other fact or figure than the type which portrays the cross. For the one beam is placed upright from which the highest extremity is raised up into a horn. When the other beam is fitted onto it, 
and the ends appear on both sides as horns joined on to the one horn. And the part which is fixed on the center, on which the, in which are suspended those who are crucified, also stands out like a horn. And it also looks like a horn conjoined and fixed with other horns. In the expression, with these shall he push as with horns the nations from one end of the earth to another, again that's from Deuteronomy, is indicative of what is now the fact among all the nations. For some out of all the nations through the power of this mystery have been so pushed, that is, pricked in their hearts, have turned from vain idols and demons to serve God. So this verse in Deuteronomy 33, um, 13 through 17, it's a blessing on Joseph, but it's also kind of like a prophecy in the way that Justin Martyr sees it. And it says, for example, let him be glorified among his brethren. His beauty is like the firstling of a bullock, his horns, the horns of a unicorn. With these shall he push the nations from one end of the earth to another. And Justin Martyr is appropriating this to Jesus and the gospel, how he has basically pushed people by convicting their hearts through his death and resurrection, convicting their hearts to the gospel. That's what Justin Martyr, who was a very early figure in the church, is appropriating it. And the way he's appropriating it is by painting a vivid picture of the cross as kind of metaphors for the horns with the various beams left and right, up and down. And so again, we see that very early on people believed that this was the shape of the cross that Christ was crucified on. Now this is a article in Wikipedia. It's actually a pretty good article. It's very well documented on descriptions in antiquity of the execution cross. There's a lot of stuff in here and you can see various illustrations from old uh, manuals and Roman situation, uh, Roman sources, Christian sources, but I want to read a few things. Made of more than one piece, Irenaeus, this is early second century, remarks that the very form of the cross too has five extremities, two in length, two in breadth, and one in the middle, on which the last, the person rests who is fixed by the nails. So Irenaeus, again, second century, believed the cross, at least the cross of Christ, was a T-shape, just like tradition has held. To the pagan jibe about Christians being devotees of the cross, Tertullian, also around the second century, responds by saying the pagans no less adored images of wood, with the difference that they worship what is only part of a cross while the Christians are credited with an entire cross complete with a transverse beam and a projecting seat. So this is already tradition at the time in the second century. Even the pagans believed that about the Christians. He then adds that the very structure of our body suggests the essential and primal outline of a cross. The head ascends to the peak, the spine stands up straight, the shoulders traverse the spine. If you position a man with his arms outstretched, you shall have created the image of a cross. So Tertullian, another church father, influential figure in the early church, even believed, so he testified first off that pagans ascribed the cross as a T to Christians. That was a very well-known thing. So we saw that that was believed by the Christians. It was ascribed by pagans to the Christians, especially from that uh, graffiti that we looked at. And he's saying that basically, look, the body, we're made in the image of a cross almost. Like we're obviously we're made in the image of God, but the body follows that shape of a cross with the shoulders and the arms, basically if they're outstretched, forming a cross. So that was very interesting. Again, all these people believed the same thing. For outstretched arms of a victim. The early Christians interpreted their practice of praying with arms outstretched as a representation of the form of Christ's cross. 
So you can see these early, uh, you know, pictures of basically a, a practice that Christians had with praying with our arms outstretched. And that was from the, the idea that Christ was crucified with arms outstretched. Okay, so that's very important. Tertullian saw this prayer posture reflected in nature. The birds now are rising, are lifting themselves up to heaven, and instead of hands, are spreading out the cross of their wings while saying something which may be supposed to be a prayer. So Tertullian also, again, applying the cross to the birds. According to the Naphtali, according to Naphtali Weeder, uh, it is because Christians interpreted prayer with outstretched hands as referring to the crucifixion of their Messiah that the Jews abandoned this prayer posture, which had previously been a Jewish tradition. Another piece of evidence, very interesting. Justin Martyr interpreted as uh, foreshadowing the shape of the execution cross, the episode in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 17, verses 8, to 8 through 13. The text says that Moses raised, right, in, in the Greek Septuagint translation, I forget what this word is, I can't read it, but he, he raised his hands without specifying in what way they were raised. So, well, let's go on and I'll talk about it. But Justin uses a more specific expression to describe the posture of Moses, saying that the, he spread out his hands on both sides. He added that when Moses relaxed some element of his posture, this posture imitating the cross, the people were defeated. But when Moses maintained it, the people were prevailing on account of the cross. He attributed this type, this effect, not to the prayer of Moses, but to the fact that Moses was forming the sign of the cross with his body. So let's keep going and we'll, we'll talk about this because this is actually a pretty involved thing. The, the same Old Testament event is interpreted in a similar way in, or in the earlier Epistle of Barnabas. Now, Epistle of Barnabas is not canon, but it's still something that happened in history that we can look at, which saw as one of the prophetic signs of the cross and him who was to be crucified on it. In what Moses did when he, standing higher than all, stretched out his hands and so again Israel conquered, then when he let them down, they were again slaughtered. It says that in this Moses was inspired to make the form of a cross and of him who was about to suffer. Justin Martyr said the cross shape is found in things that have a transverse as well as an upright element. The sea is not trans traversed except that a trophy which is called a sail abides safe in the ship and the earth is not plowed without it. Diggers and mechanics do not their work except with tools which have this shape. And the human form differs from that of the irrational animals and nothing else than in its being erect and having the hands extended and having on the face extending from the forehead what is called the nose, through which there is respiration for the living creature. And this shows no other form than that of a cross. So there were a lot of things in here. First, I want to comment on this um, Exodus 17, 8 through 13. This is when the Israelites were fighting various Canaanite tribes and pagans. And Moses was instructed to lift his hands up. As long as his hands were up, then they would win. And, you know, of course, he, he was older, he was getting tired, and they ended up having to hold his hands up so that the Israelites would, would win. And so this is obviously something is meaningful about it. And the, the early church fathers were attributing this as a type, as a prefigurement, as a shadow of the cross. And we saw that with both Justin Martyr and in the Epistle of Barnabas. But again, the Epistle of Barnabas is not considered scripture, right? But we can still consider these types of things as historical documents that show the thinking of the time. 
just like the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not considered scripture for several reasons. There's a lot of things in there that theologically don't match up with the gospels, that don't match up with scripture. There's some contradictory things. So obviously the Holy Spirit did not write the book of Enoch. However, that doesn't mean we can disqualify it totally from consideration. The book of Enoch has a lot of historical things in it that are very interesting that add weight to some of the things the Bible says about, for example, giants and the Nephilim. So ultimately, these things are testifying to the attitude of the church fathers, the attitude of the early Christians, the attitude of pagans towards Christians, and they all come into alignment with this idea of a cross. Now, let's see if there's one more thing. Yeah, there is one more thing here I want to talk about, which is the storogram. So this is towards the end of the article, but um, the word staros, which is in the New Testament, refers to the structure on which Jesus died, appears as early as 8200 in two papyri, papyrus 66 and papyrus 75, in a form that includes the use of a cross-like combination of the letters tau and rho. This tau rho symbol, now again, this is not the chi rho, this is not the first two letters of Christ's name, this is tau rho, this is an abbreviation in Greek of stauros, which was the word for stake or pole or cross that they were using. This tauro symbol, as you can see here, it's basically a cross with a head on it. The, ta- the staurogram appears also in Papyrus 45. And again, you can look at these papyri. They're, they're indexed and you can zoom in and see how it was used, again, in relation to the crucifixion of Jesus. So when they were talking about the cross or the crucifixion, they were using this staurogram. And the question is why? What's the purpose? In 2006, Larry Hurtado noted that the early Christians probably saw in the staurogram a depiction of Jesus on the cross, with the cross represented as elsewhere by the tau, meaning the lowercase t, and the head of the loop of the row, as had already been suggested by Robin Jensen, Kurt Elland, and Erica Dinkler, as, as the head, basically. In 2008, Elbach agreed, adding more papyri containing the staurogram which is Papyrus 46, 80, and 91, and stating the starogram constitutes a Christian artistic emphasis on the cross within the earliest textual tradition. And in one of the earliest Christian artifacts we have, text and art are combined to emphasize Christian crucif- Christus crucifixus, meaning Christ crucified. In, tu- in tu- 2015, Dieter T. Roth found the starogram in further papyri and in parts of the aforementioned papyri that had escaped the notice of early scholars. So what is this? This is, again, a a way that people would use language that we don't really, I mean, we don't tend to use that kind of language, or we don't tend to use these tools today where we, you know, we're writing letters. Obviously, everything is now typed. We use keyboards, right? We use our phones. But when people wrote, there was calligraphy. There was a lot more, you know, language is much more complex and interesting thing because it was not being standardized by a keyboard or by, you know, a printing mechanism. You had to write. And so people took liberties with writing for various artistic reasons. And in this case, they, they combined the word, the, the letters that would identify stauros, which is the object of crucifixion, into an image that represented the crucifixion, right? So you had basically tau rho, which everybody knew was staros, especially in the context of the of the phrasing and the verses. But you had 
the letters that actually literally look like a cross with cross beams, perpendicular, and a head, meaning somebody was crucified on there. So ultimately, this is being shown that it's a very consistent Christian tradition. Very early on, these papyri that are found, they're very old. They're from the second century. And so this all just adds evidence upon evidence historically that Christians believed that Christ was crucified on a cross, not a T-beam, not an X, not a pole, but a cross with two beams, perpendicular and uh, and vertical. I should say horizontal and vertical. They were perpendicular. It shows that the pagans believe that about the Christians as well, right? So it's not like the pagan testimonies against the Christians was somehow mat- uh, mismatching. They were the same thing. And it just shows, again, overall that people's attention and belief was on this idea. I mean, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, they looked poetically at life, at how the human body is constructed, how birds fly. All these things were attributed to the cross. They saw typology in things like Moses stretching out his hands. I mean, this was a very common thing. It was very much prevalent in the Christian mind that Christ was crucified on a cross. Now, I want to look at biblical evidence. And so this is pretty easy because ultimately the Bible is very clear, I think, and that should be our first source. But I wanted to give you historical evidence to show you that, in fact, there is actually quite a lot of evidence that Christians believed. And first off, we know that it's possible, very possible for Christ to have been crucified on a T-shaped cross. Because again, there's a lot of different types of crosses that people used. And then very early on, Christians believe that And so you put one and one together, and the very likelihood is that Christ was crucified on a T-shaped cross. But what does the Bible say? Let's look at the Bible, and we have a a couple of key verses that are pretty interesting. In Matthew 27, verse 37, and it basically says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, this is a very important piece of evidence, because if you are crucified on a stake, where your arms are literally like above your head, the sign would not be put over your head. There's no room. They would be put. It would be put over your hands. So the this is a piece of evidence from the Bible that shows us that the sign that was put over Jesus's head was put over his head, meaning his arms were outstretched and the sign was over his head, just like tradition has always claimed it to be. And again, if it was the other way around, is on a pole and his hands were vertically above his head, it would make no sense to have a sign over his head, but rather over his hands. That would be an important detail, especially considering how detailed people like Luke and Matthew were in their reporting of the Gospels. They they had a lot of details. I mean, they were very careful to make sure that the details of the Gospel accounts were very clear. And so that is a piece of evidence in favor of the T-shaped cross. But now in John 20, verse 25, It says, this is Jesus and Thomas. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Pretty famous verse there. But one thing people don't realize is that nails is plural. Nails is a plural word. And what is this plural word related to? Unless I see in his hands, plural, the mark of the nails, plural. This is a very important detail. Why is this important? Because if Christ was crucified on a stake, like some people believe, 
there's only one nail for both hands. Do you see how that works? It's only, he would say, I, unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands. But it's the nails in his hands. They wouldn't use two nails if Christ was crucified on a pole. They would use one nail. They were not going to waste nails on criminals, right? The Roman government was very much as efficient as possible. And so when he says nails, that means that the apostles knew that Christ was crucified with two nails, meaning his arms were outstretched on a T-shaped cross, just like tradition has always said. Now we also have another piece of evidence in John 28, or sorry, John 21 verse 18, where Christ predicts Peter's death. Now we know Peter was crucified upside down, right? Peter was crucified upside down. That's a famous church tradition, especially he he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as Christ, right? So he was crucified upside down. Now, there's an important prophet part in this prophecy that testifies to how Peter would be crucified. Now, look at this. Verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Very important verse. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19 is John's commentary. This is this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, to, he said to him, follow me. So he foretold Peter's death on the cross, being crucified upside down. And he didn't say upside down, but we know that Peter was crucified upside down. But the important detail is you will stretch out your hands. So now I guess you could make an argument that Peter's stretching out his hands above his head, but it's more likely that his stretching out, meaning outward, I'm stretching one hand to the right, I'm stretching the other hand to the left. I'm stretching out my hands so that I could be crucified. So ultimately, that's another piece of evidence. Now, again, it's not a piece of evidence that Christ was crucified on a T-shaped cross, but it just adds to the mountain of evidence that, again, they were using T-shaped crosses and that... This was a common thing combined with the church tradition and beliefs of everybody that Christ was crucified on a T-shaped cross. It's it's pretty much clear that Christ was indeed crucified on a T-shaped cross. So there's really not much debate there if you ask me. But the last piece of evidence I want to show you is actually kind of interesting. It's a little more um, typological, I should say, but it is still interesting. This is from just a website talking about Israel's wilderness camp picture. So it's a picture or, you know, a visualization of the camp that Israel had in the wilderness as they would basically travel to and fro for 40 years. And so let's read this a little bit and we can take a look at something very cool. The wilderness tents from the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon were placed together on the eastern side. Okay. And they were how many people? 186,000. So you had a picture here, kind of this visualization, but the thing is, this is not accurate in the sense of what I want to show you. It's accurate in how it's laid out, you know, like the directions, but there's there's a secret hidden, I believe, in the amounts of people. This is very important, so keep this in mind. So Judah was on the east, there were about 186,000. Tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were on the southern side, and there were about 151,000. The western side was the wilderness encampment, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and they were about 100, 
uh, and 8,000. The tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, they were under Dan's banner and they were placed on the northern side. So they were 157,000. So when you read all this stuff, it, it's easy to, <clears throat> excuse me, to gloss through these chapters in the Bible, especially like Numbers and you know Deuteronomy and some of these Leviticus where the laws are, we, we kind of gloss through them and say, oh, there's nothing really important here. This is just matter of fact stuff. And in reality, there's everything, everything in the Bible is important. It's just we have to unlock it with patience and careful study. A lot of the Levitical laws that seem just, oh, so boring to read through, they're all typological for Christ, which is just fascinating. And once you realize that, you read through those chapters in a much more interesting way. And of course, when it comes to these chapters about the various numbers of the Israelites and how they were camped, it doesn't seem like there's much of a connection to anything. But if we plot this out, and people have done this, and there's people online who have done animations to this, but I just made this simple little chart using a Google Sheet. So you have, if we zoom in here... um, you have basically the various colors. You have Jude. And again, if if you're listening to this only, then um, you can look up on YouTube various people who have done this, have plotted out the various um, populations of these tribes and how they're aligned around the center. But various, you have Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, these are various colors. And so if you plot this out, I'm going to zoom out so you can see. Let me just zoom in a little bit more. Okay, there we go you can see that this forms the shape of a cross. Now, how exactly they were basically laid out, who really knows, but the amounts are very indicative, okay? So Judah on the east side was about 180,000. They were the most. So they had the most amount of people and they had to occupy the most amount of space. And so they were probably organized in some sort of rectangular shape, I'm guessing, right? And then you had other tribes like on the west side, uh, you had Ephraim, Manasseh, and they were the least. So they were 100,000. So right away, that's interesting because on the west side, you had a short side and on the east side, you had a long side because of the population amounts. But then on the east and west, you know, Reuben, Dan, they were equal. They were about 150,000 each. So look at what this forms. This is just fascinating because throughout the time that the Israelites were camping, they had to camp in this shape, whatever the shape was, but I believe it was very similar to the shape of a cross because you had, again, one long side, you had a short side, so east was the long side with Judah, west was the short side, but then north and south were equal sides, so it was kind of like a cross beam going atop a, uh, you know, uh, an actual cross, and so this is just very fascinating, and again, this is probably not the best visualization, (laughs) obviously, it's like a you know, Google Sheet with colored squares, but you get the point. I hope you get the point. And so the point is that, look, the conclusion from all these pieces of evidence is that the T-shaped cross definitely happened in history. It's not a pagan symbol. It's very likely that Jesus died on a T-shaped cross. All the church fathers agreed on a T-shaped cross. The pagans accused Christians of worshiping a T-shaped cross. And of course, there's a lot of biblical evidence in favor of a T-shaped cross. So why this is all important is two things. And the first one is, I believe there's a lot of spiritual significance in the cross. God does everything very intentionally, obviously. 
He's a, he's a poet. He's an artist. Everything about history is just so carefully choreographed. And especially when it comes to the cross and the death of Christ, there has to be a lot of meaning in everything. And I believe that the cross resembles as a symbol a lot of things, not just reminds us of the death of Christ and the propitiation for our sins. But if you look at Jesus' arrival in history is the most important event in history. And in his death and resurrection, there were reconciled opposites that could possibly, that could not be reconciled, right? So if we look at, for example, man and God, man and God was reconciled because of Jesus' work. And of course, Jesus is man and God, so he was on the cross. And so the cross, you have these two beams, and these two beams show you what? The intersection of two things that are in two completely different dimensions. You have the horizontal dimension, and then you have the vertical dimension. The horizontal, right, for earth, and the vertical for heaven. Man and God. Heaven and earth. Death and life, right? God is the source of life, and we are just dying. We're not able to live in within ourselves. Sin and righteousness, disobedience, obedience, justice and mercy, right? That's a famous saying, that justice and mercy kiss at the foot of the cross. So the cross has this incredibly powerful symbol and just draws you into remembering the, the poetic significance, the powerful poetic significance of Christ's death on the cross. Not just that he is the propitiation of sins, which alone itself is like mind-blowing that God would come down and do such a thing. But all these things were reconciled in the cross. It's just truly fascinating. And the cross as a symbol is the perfect symbol for that. And so God chose that symbol, I believe, to show his grace, his power, his beauty, his mercy, all these things, and how his genius is able to bring things together in such a way. Again, nothing is impossible for God. So the cross is a powerful symbol, and it's something that we can use to remember the death of Christ, but also the the beauty of just his plan of salvation and how nothing is impossible for God, how he's able to reconcile things that seem impossible to reconcile. So it's a beautiful symbol. Now, there are good ways to use the cross, and there are bad ways. If you're you know, having a crucifix and blessing it and kissing it, if you have a rosary, if you are relying on a cross for protection, if you're going and seeing relics, you know, like the Catholics have with various relics and pieces of the cross and trying to do pilgrimages there. Again, if you're kissing the cross, if you're bowing down to a cross, if you're doing the sign of the cross, we'll talk about that a little bit. But look, the sign of the cross I grew up Eastern Orthodox. I went to Catholic schools. We did the sign of the cross all the time. Especially in Catholicism, the way the sign of the cross is done paints an upside-down cross on your body. So you have to be careful. They go all the way from the top to about the middle of the chest, and then they bifurcate that cross at the shoulders. If you actually draw that, it's an upside-down cross. So you have to be careful. Now, of course, they're going to say, oh, you know, it's St. Peter's cross. Don't worry about it. Well, again, there are esoteric and exoteric things, meaning what people believe on the outside, but what do the initiates believe on the inside? This is the way they get you to do something. Meanwhile, they are paying homage to their God through blasphemy and all kinds of other things. So I have abandoned the sign of the cross in form, in the sense of like doing it because it leads to superstition. You know, I used to think that, oh, if I, if I just cross something, 
like my pillow at night or whatever. Now I'm safe. And again, it's like these things are subtle tendencies toward forgetting to rely on God, but rather becoming superstitious. Okay, I'm not going to say idolatrous if you're doing the sign of the cross, but it it does bring you into superstition, which again, if you look at Catholicism, if you look at Eastern Orthodoxy, which I grew up with, very superstitious, a lot of superstitions. A lot of those cultures are very superstitious. And so they, the cross is just an extension of that as a sign of the cross. I'm not talking about the actual symbol. So we have to be careful The praying the rosary, you know, going to relics and things. You're basically transferring your faith into a physical fleshly thing. These things are not good ways to use uh, the cross. I had a, uh, uh, I still I still do, I have a crucifix from Bethlehem. It's a very old cruise, probably 100 years old now, maybe more. I don't know how we got in the family. It's, it's a gift. And I used to have it up on my wall, but I took it down. I took it down because Christ is not on the cross anymore. He's in heaven ruling. He's king. He's king of king, lord of lords. He's resurrected. And again, if you look at some of these institutionalized religions like Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism, they like to keep Christ either on the cross where he's dead or dying or harmless or as a baby, right? Little baby Jesus with Mary is the emphasis. And so he's never pictured in greatness and, you know, conquering as the king, but rather he's always in some sort of weak position. So we have to be careful. Now, again, I didn't throw that crucifix out. I kept it as a gift. It's in you know, store it somewhere because it's a rare gift. And it reminds me if I look at it at the death of Christ, but I'm not going to hang it up and have it there as a sense of protection or something to look at or to venerate. Absolutely not. So there, I, obviously I wear a hat <laughs> every episode. I wear this hat with a cross on it. Is that because I feel it protects me? No, I use that because it's a reminder of the crucifixion. It's a reminder of who I belong to. And when I put it on and go out in public, I don't do this all the time, but when I do and I put it on to go out in public, it makes me remember like, oh man, I'm, I have to be extra careful today with my behavior because I'm representing Christ. People see me with a Christian hat on and I'm acting, you know, poorly. What does that say about Jesus? And so these are ways that we can use the cross in a healthy way and unhealthy way. It's okay to wear a cross, a cross on your clothing it's okay to have jewelry as a, cross, as a cross if you have a necklace with a cross on it. But look, remember, this is a symbol, okay? It's a symbol, first off, of torture and shame. So don't get carried away with it. Don't get huge. You know, look at these wrappers with giant golden crosses and diamonds. This is not what we should do. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It's not a matter of how big your cross is or how it looks. It's just a reminder. It's a simple reminder. And so the, the simpler, in my opinion, the better but don't go overboard, you know, and again, if you find yourself that you're the type that you become superstitious, where you need to have it on, otherwise you might not feel safe, then maybe it's time to put it down and let it go for a little bit. But there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross or having a cross on your clothing, but remember who you're representing. Don't get inventive either. Don't get creative and, and do like sideways crosses or, you know, do all these different, I mean, the Eastern Orthodox have all kinds of elaborate crosses, you know, and they say, oh, this is the true cross. I mean, look, a cross is a cross. It's simple. It's about the simple things. Again, remember, two things are being reconciled, a beam and a cross beam. It's such a simple yet powerful symbol of the work of God. We shouldn't add to it or take away from it or say that it's pagan or anything like that because first and foremost, that's not established in history. 
It's, it's never was a pagan symbol and people were put sacrificing to their gods on a cross. Cross was an instrument of torture and it still is in some sense. Like when you look at it, that should be the first thing that you remember, that it's a symbol of torture and shame and the great price that Christ paid for us to be redeemed. But at the same time, that's the <laughs> kind of, that's, you know, that's the dark part of it. You know, it's, that's the, the sinful part of it, that man would kill his own creator. But the good news is salvation. It's how things were reconciled, man and God, heaven and earth, you know, sin and righteousness. All these things were reconciled at the cross. That's the good news. And so we have to remember both, I think. So I hope that this has been helpful. I hope that this presentation has been helpful to you. There's a lot of things on the internet that come across people's minds and desks that are partly true and partly not. And so we have to be careful because every little lie of the enemy is designed to plant a seed. This problem with the cross seems like it's not, you know, anything major, but again, a lot of people will use it to cast doubt on, at the very least, you know, Christianity, on your faith, on the Christian religion, all, all kinds of things, right? So ultimately, we have to use discernment and do not be ashamed of the cross. I'm not ashamed of the cross. I love the cross, not in an idolatrous sense, but I love what it represents and what it reminds me of, that I'm saved by the blood of Jesus, that despite all my countless sins, that there's no way to even enumerate them how many they are. Despite all that, my sin was reconciled to righteousness at the cross. And I remember that when I see the cross, it's a beautiful symbol. That's why I keep it on my hat. And that's why I use it for these episodes, because ultimately it's a reminder. It's a reminder of these very, very important things that we tend to forget about as we're running about through life. So I hope today has been useful for you. I hope it's been a blessing. Share it with somebody that maybe believes in these things so they can wake up to the truth. And if you are, again, a Jehovah's Witness, I really pray that you see that you have been deceived, not just by the something so silly as the shape of the cross, but deeper things in the Jehovah's Witness, you know, religion, I guess I would call it. The, the religion that really it's a workspace religion. You've been deceived that Christ is not God, not the eternal existing God. You've been deceived that the Trinity is not true, because therefore what that means is the atonement is is incapable of atoning for your sins. And so look, this is another can of worms, but I hope that this has maybe helped you see the truth in this and helped you question your organization. So either way, God bless you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>